Mr. Suarez comes forward and then listen to his direction because I don't know if he's going to pray first or not, but he'll go ahead and, uh, and, and direct you from here. All right, let us pray for the sermon. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee, O God, that we've come to this portion of the service. O Lord, of what we have heard already, O God, grant us to bring these truths together. O Lord, to uh, not raise up confusion in our mind, to grow uh, distracted. Lord, remove, O Lord, from him who preaches error. O Lord, and grant that Thy word should be upon the lips. And Lord, grant free from, a freedom from error in the hearers and distraction. Lord, grant that we should be lifted up to behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and be transformed from glory to glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. Our sermon texts come from uh, mainly from verse 9, but we will read from verse 5 to verse 10 for context. So, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. God is light, says the inspired apostle. This is the message heard from Christ himself, right? And this is the message that he declares to be of prime importance for his readers. What proceeds from this statement in verse 5 are the implications in parallel forms. Verse 7 and 9 are coupled together to state the positive implications. And then verse 6, 8, and 10 put forward the negative implications in a culminating fashion. To see what I mean, look at the end of verse 6, 8, and 10. And see, as it concerns deception, we have verse 6, we lie. In verse 8, we deceive ourselves. In verse 10, we make him a liar. And again, as it concerns truth, go back to verse 6 at the end. We do not the truth, it says. Verse 8, the truth is not in us. And worse, verse 10, his word is not in us. To what kind of persons, then, are these successive and climactic appraisals made? Verse 6, if any of us profess to be a partaker of communion and fellowship with God, and yet we live a life of moral darkness opposite to what God is, we ourselves lie, and we do not practice the truth. The implied doctrine here is that any which would be brought into so close a relationship 
with God, a fellowship with God, or bear some family relation, even friendship with him. Well, he must certainly bear some semblance and liking, similarity to him. In this vein, David, by the Spirit, will ask in the Psalms on more than one occasion, Lord, who shall abide? Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Psalm 15, verse 1. Also, Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? For those of you that remember, the inspired answers offered to both of these are similar. He that walketh uprightly, right? He worketh righteousness, and he speaketh the truth, not only on his lips, but in his heart. Psalm 24, similar. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Uprightness, righteousness, truth, cleanness, purity, these are required to stand and dwell in God's special presence of blessing and glory. I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, he says in Leviticus 10.3, and in Leviticus 11.44, I am the Lord your God, Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. We heard that earlier. To walk in moral darkness, then, to live a life contrary to God's rectitude and holiness is to negate whatever profession of truth and religion we might give. This moral darkness is not only found in the contradiction between one's profession of faith and the contrary way of life, as in verse 6, But in verse 8, it even colors their self-perception, the assessment that they're able to have of themselves. They cannot even acknowledge and see that they have sin in verse 8, or in verse 10, that they have sinned. They are deceived. The truth is not in them. They make God a liar, and his word does not find a home in them to dwell. The words of God may flit and flutter about their lips. Congregation, it may even find a place upon our lips as it did in the day of Christ with the Pharisees. But here, the fearful assessment of the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 10, His word, not His words, His word, singular, is not in us. His doctrine, His reason, His mind, even His Son, the Word of life, Jesus Christ, is not in us. This people, the Lord will say by the prophet Isaiah, draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips they do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. Likewise in Psalm 50, what hast thou to do to to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldst take my covenant in thy mouth. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such a one as thyself, but I will reprove thee, and set them, that is thy sins, before thine eyes. Right, as in a court of judgment, to expose, to bring to shame. What then is to be expected of those who profess to be a partaker of friendship and communion with God? who is light. Verse 7 tells us that the corollary is that they walk, that is, they live a life in the light as he is in the light. Their life is characterized 
by the knowledge of God, the truth of God, the goodness of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the love of God, and so on. This is their study. This is their aim and their continual purposing. Right? This is what they endeavor after. But these are not sinless angels we are speaking of. Right? This is not Adam pre-fall. These in verse 7 are those uh, who walk in the light, are those whom the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son cleanseth from all sin. These are in some respects sinners, for otherwise they would not need cleansing from all sin. But these sinners, right, the light of God has shone upon them. Setting forth the true nature of their condition, of their works, of their life is contrary to God. However, this light has not only exposed what was sinful, but is involved in an ongoing renewing effect upon the soul of these sinners to draw them to love the light, to live in the light, to walk in the light. As the Apostle Paul has said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is a light that has not only regenerated them to life, but is transforming them, as he says in the previous chapter, from glory to glory, as they with open face, beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. Congregation, if we would be these of whom the inspired apostle speaks of, we cannot say in verse 8, we have no sin, or in verse 10, that we have not sinned, Those who walk in the light, verse 9, confess. They confess their own sins. Confessions of sins, then, is a distinguishing mark and duty of those who walk in the light. A duty perhaps contrary to the innate pride of man, but here it is attended with a great mercy and promise, forgiveness of sins and cleansing from all unrighteousness. And if we were uncertain of this mercy and promise, we are provided with that which holds this connection together, the faithfulness and justice of God. We have us in verse 9, then three clauses to spend the remainder of our time together considering. Number one, the duty of confession. That distinguishing feature of those who walk in the light. Number two, the mercy promised. Forgiveness of sins and cleansing from all unrighteousness. And number three, the ground and backing of the promise, the faithfulness and justice of God. We begin then by considering confession, the duty of confession, if we confess our sins. Well, the word in Greek for confess is a compound word, combining the words for sameness or likeness in Greek and speaking, right, logos. Bring those together and you have a sameness or a likeness of what is spoken, A saying of the same thing. In the Apostle John's Gospel, we find this word being used as follows. John chapter 1, verse 20, John the Baptist confessed, and he denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Chapter 9, verse 22, the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he, Jesus, was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Chapter 12, verse 42, among the chief rulers, many believed on him, But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. And in John's first letter, apart from verse 9 of chapter 1, we have in chapter 4, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. 
and he who does not confess this is of the spirit of Antichrist. So then, from John's usage of the term, it becomes evidently clear that to confess in verse 9 must involve speech. Words, the mouth, tongue. It is speech that involves a declaration of sorts. There is something which this speech is affirming, a bringing of our speech in accord and assenting to certain propositions. These propositions that are assented to must be true. John the Baptist confesses, he declares, no, I am not the Christ. I am not him. Right? I've come, I'm, I'm the one who comes before him to prepare the way. He comes after me. Or the parents of the blind man made to see. Or the chief rulers thought to themselves, well, we can't confess Jesus to be the Christ. Even if we think it, we can't hint at it or we'll be put out. Or in 1 John 4, we ought to assent to the truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But here in verse 9, this declaration and confession which is commended to us is not so much focused on who Christ is or even what is said later concerning whether Christ has come in the flesh. But it is an affirmation and agreement concerning sin, about sin. In confession, there are two parties, said one minister in this regard, God of the one part and we of the other. And we and he unite in a concurrent declaration in regard to sin. To confess our sins is to speak and say the same things which God says concerning it. But what is sin? And what sin must we come to speak the same things of God? Uh, to say the same things of with God on? The Apostle John defines what sin is for us in chapter 3 of this epistle, verse 4, which says, Sin is the transgression of the law. Or another translation would read it that sin is lawlessness. It is going contrary to some duty, some law. But what law? Well, certainly, God's law, His revealed will, what is good and acceptable and perfect before God. And this He has revealed to mankind. The prophet Micah will say in 6.8 to this effect, He hath showed thee, O man, where there's Adam, Adam. He hath showed thee what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee. Confession ought to be then for that which violates God's law. It is a recognition that sin is first and foremost against the divine lawgiver and his commands. Joseph in Genesis 39 illustrates this well when Potiphar's wife lusted after him and told him, lie with me. Although he recognizes the great wrong it would be to Potiphar himself and the trust that he has given to him, his response and reproof to her concludes with the following, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The command to confess sins centers our focus on God as having been the primary target of our lawlessness. It centers our mind to consider his words and commands. It puts aside doctrines and opinions and commandments of men. And in this it is liberating, freeing us from the burden and distraction of man-made violations, which are no sins indeed. But it is freeing that we may consider ourselves truly and sincerely against God's commandments in their height, in their length, in their breadth. The liberty of conscience afforded to a Christian 
It's a wonderful doctrine. It's a great doctrine. We have a whole chapter in our confession on this. It says rightly that God alone is Lord of the conscience. But this also means that God, the divine lawgiver, is the Lord of conscience. And his law ought to direct our conscience how we live. It ought to convict and direct, correct and instruct. And here the divine lawgiver through his apostle directs us to a right measuring up and self-examination against his law to confess what he has informed us already is a great chasm. A great chasm between us and the perfection which his law and nature require. If we confess our sins, he says, not only one sin, but sins, plural. There is not one little sin to confess, but a whole army of them. They are a great host that appear, and they're ever increasing. To borrow the words of Ezra 9.6, our iniquities are increased over our heads. They are increased over our heads, and our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. Our sin is not one, but a multitude. They are legion. And they are not anyone's sins, but ours, our multitude, our legion, our blot, our mess. The command to confess congregation draws the guns of accusation against ourselves. To self-incriminate before God, where you, not anyone else, you come up against God's holy law and his holy, righteous, good, and loving nature. From the least to the greatest of them, confession is a taking seriously of our transgressions, even as God does. We have here then sins to confess, our sins, a multitude of sins that we can hardly count. From the least to the greatest of them, the least of them condemns you to death. The smallest of them requiring the spilling of the blood of Christ for pardon from the infinite and unending wrath of God. They are sins, not only in general, but particular sins to confess, as each is given to offend and transgress in distinct ways and directions, according as our corrupt nature is inclined. These sins reach the thoughts, the intentions, are very purposing. We have here in, in our chapter the metaphor of walking, which the apostle uses in our passage, as we said earlier. It includes the inner purposing, right? Their aim and intentions, well, a defect in that is also sin. Confessions of sins include our words and speech. If we say, the apostle will speak of in verse 6, 8, and 10, and in all these instances, their speech is a lie. It's sin. It also includes our deeds and external actions. Verse 6, if we, right, it says we walk in darkness. Walking expressing itself in outward action. And again, we do not practice the truth in verse 6. We are to confess the least to the greatest of sins, particular sins, sins in our thoughts, our words, our deeds. Furthermore, we're to confess both original and actual sins, that we have sin, verse 8, and that we have sinned. Original sin as referring to that guiltiness we inherit from the first man's sin, along with that lack of an upright and righteous nature which God created man originally with and the corresponding propensity and perverted character within our entire being, inclined to all evil. These are matters to confess, congregation. These are our sins in the root. These are they which those more voluntary and conscious sins stem forth and proceed from. 
original sin is to be confessed, but so are the actual sins. Those particular expressions against God's law that spring forth from this sinful inherited condition and disposition. We have need to confess our sins from the root to the fruit. We must self-accuse ourselves before God for all of these. From the least to the greatest of them, from the thoughts to the words, deeds, from the root to the fruit. But not only our sins as individuals, but even as we individuals make up associated bodies of people. As in our text, the apostle speaks of the communion and fellowship of the saints as a people distinguished by their walking in the light and confessing their sins. If we confess our sins, confession then is put forward for individuals and as they make up larger bodies of individuals of what we call society, so families, uh, nations, churches. Here in our text, the visible church is considered, each church member as well as the church as a corporate body. We have sinned, praise the prophet Daniel in chapter 9, verse 5, and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Or similarly, in Nehemiah 9, we have the people gathered and made to hear the reading and sense of the law of God and thereafter assenting to confession and corporate prayer saying, Thou, God, hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in a large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. While more things can be said in general of the duty of confession, there is one more item I believe is instructive to consider before proceeding to the remainder of verse 9, and that is this, that confession in this passage is one part of repentance, and that a, a, a believing repentance. To confirm this, let us take a look at a very similar passage akin to 1 John 1, 9. If you with, uh, with me, if you could turn to Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28, verse 13. It's only one verse, but it's very similar. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Read that one more time. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. The confessions of sin, which is attended with mercy in this verse, is also a confession that forsakes sins. The confessing here is put in opposition to the covering of sins. The confessor rather exposes, right? he identifies them, that the remaining parts of repentance might be engaged with, right? to forsake it, to turn from them and put them out the door of his house. And I ask, is this a faithless repentance? Does repentance not involve a believing eye to the mercy of God in Christ and is thereby moved to the uncovering of their sins by confession and to for the forsaking of their sins in order to the exercise of a particular faith where he rests and hangs on the mercy of God in Christ? Is the inspired apostle back in 1 John 1.9 
Is he communicating anything different? Is he commending the duty of confession, right, as a standalone sort of duty, without any sincerity in self-examination, without any shame, without any sorrow and hatred for one's sins, or a confession of sin without forsaking of it, or even a faithless repentance? Well, certainly not. Consider the context. Those who are confessing are those who walk in the light. The light has exposed their sins. They acknowledge, abhor it, and fly unto God in Christ for cleansing by his blood. They, in contrast to those who merely have a profession upon their lips, speak the truth. They have the word in them and have communion with God, Christ, the apostles, and the saints. They have joy, fullness of joy. They are studying and endeavoring after walking in the light. They are confessors and are encouraged to a continual practice of it by a true faith in the mercy of God in Christ offering forgiveness and cleansing. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This brings us now to consider the attending or connected mercy promised with the confession of our sins. Forgiveness and cleansing. Forgiveness and cleansing. Forgiveness, the word in Greek here refers to remittance, right? A pardoning, a sending away of guilt or debt, that which is owed and due to our trespasses and violations of God's commandments. This forgiveness is here offered for our sins. And if taken to correspond with the cleansing which is from all unrighteousness, likewise, forgiveness is promised for all sins. Congregation, our sins are many. Like an army, and while there is no sin so small or the least of them that is not subject to condemnation and worthy of damnation and needed to be repented of and pardoned, likewise in the words of our confession, there is no sin so great that can bring damnation upon those who truly repent and are forgiven. All manner of sin, Jesus says, and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Matthew 12, 13. All kinds and forms of sins, even really bad ones, great and lofty ones like blasphemies. Christ has said that he came into the world for sinners, to die for sinners. All manner of sinners as a ransom for them. His blood being shed for the remission. For the remission, the cancellation of debt, the forgiveness of sins. And as he has commissioned his ambassadors in Luke chapter 23, verse 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. In one nation? No. Among all nations. Who is God like unto thee, the prophet Micah will say, that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because, because what? Because he delighteth in mercy. He delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. The mercy of God in forgiveness is large and vast. In the words of one minister, the sea is not so full of water, nor the sun so full of light, as the Lord is full of mercies. 
Indeed, his mercies are 10,000 times greater. Consider further that this forgiveness is only vast and large, but firm and certain. Verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. While we have yet to explain the middle clause of verse 9, it is clear nonetheless that the forgiveness of sins connected with confession and repentance is grounded upon a faithful and just God. Today he will not forgive, but tomorrow he will require again because of some inconstancy or a reversing, maybe the way he got right, the way it is for us, we get out of bed just a little bit groggy. No, not so for God. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions. Psalm 103, verse 12. They are, as it were, cast into the depths of the sea. Micah 7:19. Should he require today at your hand what yesterday was pardoned by the blood of his own son? Certainly not. But more on this in a little. Lastly, let us consider how this forgiveness is presented unto you and to every reader and hearer of this letter. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Or, as we read in Proverbs 28, Whoso confesseth and forsaketh his sins shall have mercy. You who sit here today, forgiveness is ready and open for your receiving. The means are provided for. If you will confess, if you will repent, if you will but see your sins, Hate them, sorrow for them, confess them, turn from them unto God. He is faithful and just to forgive you, forgive you your sins here, now, today. Having discussed in brief the forgiveness of God, let us consider the second mercy joined with it. That is cleansing from all unrighteousness. Cleansing, the word suggests purging and purifying from filth and infirmity. Catarizo is the Greek. The writer of Hebrews will say in chapter 9, verse 22, almost all things are by the law, that is in the Old Testament, are purged. That is, they're cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. There's no remission without shedding of blood. In the same chapter, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ Purge, same word, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Cleansing of the conscience and the soul from sinful defilement can only be done by the blood of Christ. As it says in the parallel verse of our text, verse 7 of chapter 1, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. The blood of Christ is the only agent in all the created universe to clean this thing. No bleach. No detergents, no degreasers, abrasives, or acids has any success on these spots. This is the only and choice agent for cleansing, the blood of Christ. No blood of Christ, no cleansing. We have here a cleansing based on the blood. We have need for being washed and set apart for holy use by the sprinkling of this blood. Otherwise, we are like those offerings and sacrifices mentioned in Malachi chapter 1, that are blind, evil, lame, and sick. Malachi says, Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person? Certainly not. No, of course not. Neither will the Lord receive our service, or worship, or works, apart from being cleansed by the blood of Christ. 
Having considered forgiveness and cleansing in some brief ways, there is yet to consider how these mercies open themselves up, right, in a twofold manner, according to our need. There is needed by a sinner that legal, judicial, and eternal forgiveness whereby the guilt and condemnation which should damn him forever is removed. And with that comes a decisive cleansing, a decisive sprinkling, setting apart his holy, what we call definitive sanctification. The Apostle Paul, having described a number of aggravated sins in 1 Corinthians 6.11, which are incompatible with the faith, he says then, And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. However, the Apostle John, in our context, is not speaking, right? He's not speaking to pagans. He's speaking to Christians, those who confess to be in fellowship with God, those who are distinguished by their confessing. Promises of mercy are made, promises of forgiveness, and of these there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 8. And so what is the, the promised mercy and forgiveness and cleansing that is offered here? Well, it can't be a legal judicial forgiveness. It can't be that initial sprinkling as they've received such already and cannot lose these every time they sin. Consider this double promise of mercy when applied to believers as an, rather as an ongoing fatherly, a fatherly forgiveness and a progressive sanctification, a pro- progressive cleansing. The image by way of illustration is not so much that of the court and the criminal, right? But it brings us into the domestic sphere under the guidance, right, of a fatherly discipline. And this connected and aiding to a progressive purging from that inherent blotch of sin that yet remains. David, in his famous psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, will plead with the Lord, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not away thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. And so on. Many like petitions that we read there. David is not asking to be re-justified. David has long been a believer. On the contrary, David is asking God to cleanse him from the aggravated offenses which he is imbibed in. And has so marred his fellowship and communion with God. Has brought him under God's fatherly displeasure and corrective discipline. No longer having the sunshine of God's face as he once did to light upon his soul. And to give him joy and strength in the knowledge of God's active favor and salvation. The justified believer grieves. He grieves at the distance his sins have caused between him and his father from enjoying closeness together. And he loathes to see the remnants and hold of corruption that is still within him, contrary to that infused principle within that loves holiness, as some of us heard at the conference, because he loves God. His soul is anguished over the measure of faithlessness and injustice that is within God doth continue to 
Forgive the sins of those that are justified, says our confession of faith in chapter 11, section 5. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Similarly, in chapter 17, section 3, the saints of God, in speaking about the perseverance of the saints, may through the temptations of Satan of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, they may fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, even as David, with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah, whereby they incur God's displeasure, grieve his Holy Spirit, and come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts. They have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal, they bring temporal judgments upon themselves. If they break my statutes, says the Lord in Psalm 89, and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Congregation, why is it that the Lord will visit their transgression with the rod? Why does he visit his people now, you with the rod? With iniquity, with, he visits iniquity with stripes, as we read. Why does he bring temporal judgments on his own? and leave off much of the big bad world out there? Is it not because he loves his own? Is it not because he is a good father who chastens and scourges every son whom he loves? Does not judgment begin at the house of the Lord? Are these not the means to keep us in the way, to purge us and cleanse us from those strongholds that hold sway upon us, to drive his children to repentance, in order to finding mercy. It is a mercy unto us when God chastises us. And being conformed to the image of his precious Son is what we have been predestined to. Well, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Dear congregation, do you crave this fatherly forgiveness? Do you crave this progressive cleansing? Which confession as part of repentance is a means. Is the absence or dearth and paucity of holiness in love to God, is that a great grief to you? Or are you content with the way things are, with status quo? Yesterday is sufficient. Last year, perhaps, last year's holiness, that's good enough. Has a theoretical knowledge of God's justifying forgiveness and definitive sanctification become an excuse to live in the cold without the warmth and sense of his favor and joy in his ongoing renewal of fatherly forgiveness and cleansing. There's joy to be gathered from that. Well, what can you do? What can we do? David, who have gone to many times, Psalm 32 said, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy. It was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. But then he says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, 
and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Believer, does your sore, does your soul, not sore, does your soul roar all the day long? Is it like the ground that when a drought grows cracked, when it's not confessing and agreeing with God and accusing, saying, yes, your witness is true. Yes, I need your mercy. Or can you sin against your God, whether large or small, and have no sense and felt need to confess unto him? O you who claim to call upon the Lord and are named after him, confess your transgressions unto him. Hold, hold not back. There is need of the Father's nearness and of the Father's careful cleansing, his washing. Call and pray to him while he may be found. While there is fresh opportunity and a sense of conviction and duty while it is upon your mind, while the iron is hot, as the saying goes, right? Make it your first priority to strike them. Pour out your heart unto the Lord in free, full, and broken-hearted confessions, as John Flavel would say, judging yourselves worthy of hell, as well of any temporal trouble the Lord should bring upon you, justifying him in all his dealings with you, and for whatever difficulty he brings, begging him that he might forgive and cleanse you, and grant a renewing of his comfortable presence to you. Well, there is one subtopic to briefly consider under the promised mercy of forgiveness and cleansing before we move to our last point, the ground, the ground of this promise, and that is this. We must not think of this confession that's tied to the promise of mercy. Uh, as Pastor Adele, in it, as some of you had heard in another conversation, as a quid pro quo sort of way, right? Quid quo pro deals, right, their exchanges or transactions for things generally of equal value between two parties. I give you this one particular thing, and you give me that. Confession. The confession of repentance called for in 1 John 1.9, it's not a deal. God's not making a deal with you, right? Uh, I really want your confession. I'll give you this. God does not need your confession. He does not need your repentance. He is self-sufficiently happy in himself. Your confession and repentance has no worth of satisfaction to require God to give you of the heavy and costly value of forgiveness and cleansing. Your confession and repentance has no inherent worth and value to move God from his just and hot anger against your sins. Moreover, when God calls for confession and repentance, does he not call us to confess and repent all our sins? Well, yes, certainly. And yet, can any of you know all your sins to their full extent? We said they were like armies a moment ago, a legion. How then can we expect, even if we thought this was an equal deal, how then can we think that we can confess deal in confession and repentance with God as though he owes us something or as though we're making a deal with God. The Israelites of old had sacrifices to offer based upon this very reality. When they came to the knowledge of some particular sin that they had been committing, either individually or corporately, and were ignorant of up to that point, what were they required to do? There was an appointed sacrifice for that. Oh, we've been sinning all along. We need to bring sacrifice. This needs pardon. 
And yet they knew it, not up to that point. But the promise in verse John 1.9 of forgiveness and cleansing is made in connection with me confessing sins. Does this mean that if I do not catch every sin and sin in confession, I do not have the forgiveness and cleansing of God? Well, certainly not. Even our confessing needs confessing. And our repentance needs repenting. The context of 1 John 1, 9 is to describe those who have fellowship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, who walk in the light, even as He is in the light. They are those who have and are habitually confessing their sins unto God with a view to His mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. They are people that have continual recourse to that fountain of blood for pardon and washing. They are not resting upon their own confession or repentance for these mercies. Well, having said so much on the mercy promised, let us conclude our time together expounding a bit more on the ground, that middle clause which holds these two together, the faithfulness and justice of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Well, the Holy Spirit saw fit that we should find more than sufficient encouragement in this verse, not only in the presentation and open way of promised mercy, but in the strength and certainty of it to be found in God's character. He is faithful, he is faithful and just to do it. The Apostle John will use a similar pair of words in Revelation, although instead of faithful and just, he says faithful and true. Revelation 3.14, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. 19.11, He that sat upon him, the white horse, was called faithful and true. 22.6, these sayings are faithful and true. Well, from the similarity and frequency, we may gather that there is a related meaning in John's use of these pairs, faithful and just and faithful and true. At one point in Revelation 15.3, John will even combine the last two words from both pairs together so that the song of Moses and of the Lamb, God will be referred to as just and true. In the Old Testament, there is a similar pair uh, that appears to correspond, and that is mercy and truth. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 85 and 86. Thou, O Lord, are God, full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Exodus 34 will be translated goodness and truth. It is abundant in goodness and truth. Faithful and just, faithful and true, just and true, mercy and truth, goodness and truth. All of these are related. And they bear correspondence from Old Testament to New Testament to describe the God who pardons and cleanses sinners. What ideas should we then gather when we think of the faithfulness of God in this respect and in our passage? Well, we think of places riddled throughout the Old and New Testaments that speak of God's commitment and resolute firmness to show His covenant's steadfast love and mercy in redeeming a people unto Himself. To Abraham in Genesis 17, 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. It is His covenant and is one that he will perpetuate and continue and see to it. Leviticus 26, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and likewise, he says, with Isaac and Abraham, and I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors 
whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. Who did the remembering? The Lord did. To show his covenant steadfast mercy and love. Deuteronomy 7, 9, this covenant steadfast mercy and love is promised to a thousand generations. The Lord will say in Isaiah 54, 10, the mountains shall depart, the hills be removed. But my kindness is hesed. His covenant, steadfast love and mercy shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Well, that's Old Testament. How about some New Testament? The Virgin Mary, bearing the Lord Jesus Christ in her womb, prophesies in Luke chapter 1, verse 54, He, the Lord, hath hoped, he has helped me, right, his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. What mercy was this she spoke of, but God's covenant mercy promised unto Abraham, then reaching a great climax in the unfolding of redemption, as the Son of God incarnate Emmanuel rested there in her womb. After the birth of John the Baptist, his father likewise prophesied that the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. The scriptures are teeming and full of the covenant of faithful, steadfast love and mercy of God. I only read maybe a handful His faithfulness to accomplish his covenant. He remembers his covenant and is faithful to it. He accomplishes what is written in it when a large portion of visible professors have often and long grown faithless and apostatized. It is him that provides the horn of salvation, a lamb to take away the sins of the world, to perform the promised mercy. He provides a people willing in the day of Christ's power, a remnant to praise his name, faith and repentance to receive and follow after, giving those saving graces with one hand what he will require with the other. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, he says by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, and ye shall be clean, I will cleanse you. A new heart also I will give you. A new spirit will I put within you. Not you within you, I will do it. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. I will also save you from all your uncleanness. And then, he says, then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this saith the Lord God, be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And that faithfulness leads us to confession and repentance of our faithlessness. But this is not all. This, if we confess our sins, he is right, faithful and just to forgive us and of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This also forms part of the message that John and the apostles have heard from Jesus, the word of life. Him who John describes in the Revelation as the faithful and true witness, whose name is faithful and true. Repent, 
Jesus says. And that, in fact, that's what's given as the representation of his preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God, heaven is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel in Mark 1.15. Mercy is connected with believing repentance. Likewise, Jesus describes his mission as having come into the world to call sinners to repentance. Except ye repent, he says in Luke 13, ye shall all likewise perish. And he says it twice. Christ in his letters to the seven churches of Revelation 2 to 3 includes a healthy dose of commands to repent connected with either mercy or judgment. And these are to, not pagans, they're to the visible church. Visible churches, those who bear a profession of his name. Well, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent, he says. Could there be anything more said to increase the confidence that forgiveness and cleansing is readily presented before you today, congregation? Not simply for the unbeliever who has yet to repent, but for you who profess his name. For you, church member, for you, children, Forgiveness and cleansing is needful for you so long as you are on this earth. He is not only faithful to his covenant mercies, but faithful and just. He is just, that is, his mercy is never exercised in contradiction to truth or justice. His mercy is enacted in accord with his righteous nature. There are many things that could be said under this point, but we'll be brief. We'll keep it to three. First, God is just and true. If he has said and promised to do something, we can trust it because he is true and acts in accord with his upright nature. He will perform it. He obligates himself to it, to perform his own word. You may recall the uh, ceremony that we see in Genesis 15 when God performs that covenant ceremony with Abraham to confirm the promises to him. He has Abraham slay a heifer, a she-goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. He divides the bodies of all except the birds. And he lays them side by side on both ends. And what happens? God, as a burning lamp, right, as a torch, passes between them. So as to suggest that if he does not bring about the promise, the same should be done to him as these animals. An impossibility. An impossibility. And yet, he was willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel to confirm it for our weakness. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. Congregation, shall he not make it good? He has promised forgiveness and cleansing. Will he not do it? And if he shall do it, why do confession and the parts of repentance stand afar off Many times for us, many times from our souls and lips, they are foreign, right? They don't have much place there. Is it that we do not believe? Is it that we do not denounce, uh, we doubt him? Has he not provided in more than enough for our confidence? Oh, such wickedness to lament and confess to him. What hardness to abhor in ourselves that we do not plead Plead for him more often and confess to him all that passes in and out of us, contrary to his law. Secondly, God is just in the manner of saving sinners. 
in forgiving and cleansing them. He does not simply absolve sinners without any satisfaction for the guilt and penalty incurred for their disobedience. Rather, he receives satisfaction from another, even his own son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. His death, his life, his blood. He satisfied the justice of God, his Father, and purchased for us reconciliation with God. And not only that, but as Hebrews 9 tells us, but an eternal inheritance. Eternal inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Some passages we think of on these things. John Chapter 1 John 4.10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Well, how did He do that? Well, He just said, don't worry about sin. No, He says, He sent His Son to be the propitiation, the appeasement for our sins. And you may remember Isaiah, that great chapter 53, right? He hath borne our griefs. He hath carried our sorrows. He has been wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. And many more such statements. Thirdly, it was alluded to earlier, but I will uh, bring it up here only a little again. Will God require again by his justice what has been satisfied and purchased by Jesus Christ for those that are his? Will the imputed righteousness of Christ suddenly not hold the same value tomorrow? Will the inheritance which is everlasting in the kingdom of heaven and purchased by Christ suddenly cease to be unending and guaranteed? To do so would put him at odds, not only with his son, with his spirit, but with himself. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, congregation, we have heard here this day the word of our God concerning the duty of confession, the mercy of God connected with it, and the strong and sure ground of confidence that any here today may have in God's character to perform the mercy he has promised. A few uses, and then we will close. Number one, to all you who sit here today, have you confessed? Have you confessed and forsaken your sins and cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Christ? It is clear from what we've read, these are not matters of preference or taste. You must confess and repent for mercy, for pardon and cleansing of your sins. Otherwise, you will be destroyed. You will drink up his wrath and justice for all eternity. Not just then. You sit even now his enemy and under his wrath. There is no comfort or ease for your conscience to be had in any turn of providence for you. Every hardship is another blow and may be your very last. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Confess your sins. Confess your sins and forsake them. Turn to Jesus Christ for mercy. Number two, many of you would say, well, yes, we have confessed. Yeah, we've turned unto Jesus Christ. Good. But are you confessing? Are you turning to him and continuing to turn to him? Are confession and repentance the habits of your soul in the morning, in the evening, as you go about your day, week to week, as a family together confessing particular sins, the habit as you come to the table of the Lord shortly, partake right to this visible sign of great mercy for sinners, children who cannot come to the table yet, Are you exercising yourself and preparing yourself for that day to come to the table where, where as you see week by week, 
people coming to the table, are you examining yourself? Are you confessing to the Lord? Are you thinking upon the blood and the sacrifice and work of Christ Jesus? Are you preparing yourself for the day that you may one day sit, eat, and drink yourselves? Number three, in God we have an example, briefly. We are provided an example in God's mercy, in God's faithfulness, in His justice. Faithful, right? He's faithful to execute His covenant. Oh Lord, uh, or would God make us faithful to serve Him in response to His mercy? But moreover, more particularly, we're told to pray daily. Right? Forgive us our debts in the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. As not one who minimizes sins, right? but as one who delights to show mercy. Do we imitate our Father in that? Lastly, Here we have a source for great rejoicing and thanksgiving. A source for renewing of our thanks from day to day. A source to motivate us, right? To come, to confess, to repent day by day. Where where joy is increased, the more we experience his cleansing and pardon. Well, let us close there and please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, how great, how great and many are our sins. And yet, O Lord, there is great encouragement to bring them unto thee. Thou, O Lord, who has made it, that has encouraged us to bring them, to confess them, not to hold them back or to hide them or cover them. Grant unto us grace to do so, O Lord. Not only today and here as we come to the table, but, O Lord, day by day that we may be found in Christ, that we may, O Lord, be made more like him, that we may be made pure, even as he is pure, and live in thy light, and rejoice, O God, in thy great mercies and salvation. We pray, O God, help us to benefit and to take use for each according to our place and callings, according to our conditions, to take thy word and to be made better, O Lord, by thy grace from thy word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.